0: Hi, my name is Ryan Clater. I'm a university professor and comics artist of A Hunter's Tale, which you can find at ahunterstale.com. And you are listening to Two Geeks Talking with me
1: and Kurt. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. Two Geeks Talking is an entertainment industry interview show where we interview the creative people from the comic film, TV, movie, and video game industries. And of course, I'm your host, Kurt Sasso. We are joined today by a very talented comic creator. He is a professor at Michigan State University in comics, um, as well as art and a bunch of other stuff. I'll let him talk about that. But we are joined today by the talented and creative Ryan Claytor. How are you doing today, Ryan?
0: I'm doing awesome, Kurt. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I super appreciate it.
1: We're ringing in. 2022 with yourself as a comic creator but for those that don't know anything about yourself as a creator tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll talk about the project that you're going to work
0: on my name is ryan Clater, as you mentioned thanks again for having me on and this may breeze past some folks watching but you and i are recording this really early at the end of september 2021 uh to be aired in january 2022 so first of all i just wanted to say kurt thank you for being a saint and doing this with me i really appreciate it i am a university professor and a comics artist i teach comics at michigan state university where i have spearheaded the comic art and graphic novel minor course of study it's an interdisciplinary minor between the art and English departments at MSU. And if you want to find out more about it, you can go to tinyurl.com slash MSU Comics Minor. I'm the coordinator of the Comics Minor in addition to being a professor. And I've also put together a number of different comics resources around MSU. Uh, We have the MSU Comics Forum, which I did not start, but I direct the show and have done so for the past 13 years. It's been an annual event uh, ever since 2000, eight. Every year we have a couple of keynote speakers. There's one creator keynote speaker and one scholar keynote speaker. We also have a ton of events from Artist Alley to academic panel discussions to exhibitions of comic art from our special Collections library, which brings me to our Special Collections Library. At MSU, we have the largest public collection of comic books in the entire world. There is no bigger public collection of comic books that you can find. So that sits in the basement of our main library. So if you want to check out wonder woman number one or walt disney comics and stories number one we have it uh, it's very rare that there is a hole in that collection and typically when i find it i'll talk to the comics bibliographer his name is randy scott uh he's been working on that collection since the early 1970s and he's made it his life's work to create this world-class collection but all that to say on the rare occasion i find a hole in the collection i'll, I'll write him and say oh did- do we have this? And nope, but we do now. And he's, he'll place an order and <laughs> fill that hole. So it's like comics nirvana being at MSU. So that's, that's one part of what I do. The other part of what I do is, uh, I'm a practicing cartoonist. So I've been making comics since 2004 and self-publishing them i've done a number of different autobiographical comics since i started out but more recently i've uh sort of shifted my focus a little bit it's still nonfiction comics, but my most recent issue uh, is called Coin Op Carnival. And I put that together with my great friend and technical genius. His name is Nick Baldridge. I illustrated the whole thing and together we co-wrote the magazine. It's a fully illustrated magazine. It's probably about 20% comics, full color illustrations on every single page, documenting coin-operated electromechanical amusement devices, which is a fancy way of saying older pinball and arcade games manufactured prior to 1978. That came out uh, just before the pandemic in 2019. And we managed to squeeze in a nice tour for that before the pandemic hit. Over the course of the past summer, I've been working on my next comic book, and that is called A Hunter's Tale, which is live right now. If you go to ahunterstale.com, there's a Kickstarter running for it throughout the duration of January 2022. Find out all about it there, but I'm sure we'll be talking about it some more here today as well.
1: Needless to say, that's an amazing resume. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank you that, that's incredible i mean you, you've done you you're working at a wonderful university you're working with comics the fact that you have the largest collection at that university like i i i have so many questions to ask and so much i could dive into for sure but let, let that's what i'm here for
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this this does mean that i have to have you on the show multiple times. <laughs> I do you realize that
0: right? okay this twist seems- my arm kurt <laughs> <laughs>
1: But there's a lot of uh, wonderful questions. We we asked Twitter, of course, for fan questions of your work. They had some really wonderful questions. So I'm going to start asking their questions to you first. Sure. Speaking of comics, then, uh, Eyeball Kid, which is at Father of Sandwich, wrote, If you could have a meal with any comic creator, living or dead, who would it be and what would you eat?
0: <laughs> I love the work of Sergio Aragonese. And I've been a big fan of his ever since I started reading comics. And it's nice to have a childhood fandom that translates well into adulthood. Like I think his work still holds up, which is not necessarily the case for all your childhood (laughs) interests. I've been reading Gru the Wanderer for a very long time and all of Sergio's work. I also love... Indian food. We have a great place in town called Sindhu. I am going to probably make people hate me by saying this, but my dream of having dinner at Sindhu with Sergio Aragonés has happened. <laughs> he was one of our keynote speakers for the MSU Comics Forum. I invited him, I believe it was to- was it 2016? I'm trying to, to recall. One of the perks of being the director of this forum is not only being able to invite people, but also getting to know them a little bit. And Sergio was just everything you want him to be, a, a consummate gentleman, an entertainer. I'm, I'm typically sharing my time with him, but there was a, a final night he was here where I was going to take him back to his hotel. And it's like, well, what other restaurants are around here? And I told him about, told him about Sindhu and East Lansing he's like, I love Indian food. So we went there and had a great conversation. And like he was wearing this vest, old man fishing vest <laughs> that he keeps all his pins in. He he opened up the, the inside of the vest and showed me this area where a pin, you know, of course, he's Sergio Aragones, he's carrying a pin all the time, had leaked in his pocket of his favorite vest and he didn't want to get rid of it. So instead of buying a new vest, he sewed caricatures of grew, and refer to over top of the ink stain nobody can see this but him and he opened this up i'll, I'll have to send you a picture i asked him if i could yeah. take a picture of it so I, I snapped one and he's like oh yeah of course it, it was an amazing night and uh one that i will remember for a very long time
1: <laughs> it's it's wonderful to meet your own mentors and heroes and everything like that and to share uh, A simple meal and a wonderful conversation. Not many of us get to do that. Yeah, I,
0: I, I feel awfully fortunate to be able to do that.
1: Next question then is from at TMT Nova says, what spurred on your passion for comics and how did you come upon making the current comic you'll be having a Kickstarter for?
0: Yeah, those are good questions. So I got interested in comics pretty early in my life because I was a, a pretty reluctant reader when I was young, was not the fastest reader I could read, but it wasn't something I was very interested in doing of my own volition. Until comics entered the picture, you know, I was an artistic kid. I've been drawing since I was—I don't—I don't, I don't know—since I can remember. I remember drawing Care Bears when I was five years old, and I was probably drawing before that. So comics entered my life real early. They kind of spurred this interest in reading and learning and storytelling, visual storytelling at that. I mean, it—seeing the combination of words and pictures just excited my little brain just like it does my my old brain now. <laughs> so that was my introduction to comics. I got started with some Disney duck books, mainly like Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge. I didn't have a lot of interest in the Mickey Mouse comics. I felt like Mickey was a little, a little sterile, a little boring. (laughs) Whereas Donald felt a little more relatable, like things would happen in Donald's life. They go wrong, just like they do in all of our lives. And he would lose his temper and uncle Scrooge who doesn't want a big bin full of money. And (laughs) so that's where I got started. And then as I started to age out of that a little bit and starting to appreciate satire in comics. I think I was maybe like eight or nine years old when I started reading *Grew the Wanderer. That really cemented my love of Sergio Aragones. And then 35 years later, I am inviting him to speak at the university where I teach. Like who, who would have thought life is funny that way. That's kind of my comics origin story.
1: So at 30 homes asked, have you played pinball at Todd McCullough's house? And what is it like? (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay. So this is obviously a pinball insider asking this. Kurt, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Todd McCulloch, but he's a former NBA player who is a big pinball fanatic, an incredibly nice human being, salt of the earth, nice guy. Obviously I'm into pinball. You, you can see the room behind me. <laughs> I like it a little bit. Same thing. Subject of my most recent book, Coin Op Carnival, probably in about 2014, I was at the Chicago Pinball Expo. I was there with my young son. He was a year old at the time. He was still, you know, hanging on my chest, right? And that year I went on my own with my son. Uh, I think my my wife was on a a business trip or something. Cruising the floor and there's a new pinball game that was being released. And so my son and I are just sitting there watching the new game being played. All of a sudden, this huge looming force comes over me and... (laughs) says are you ryan Clater? <laughs> and, uh, and i look up like you you literally have to look up like you're looking at a skyscraper when you look at todd McCulloch. and i see who it is and you know there's no mistaking todd McCulloch. he's the the one seven foot three person at the pinball show and i say yes are you todd McCulloch?" and he starts talking to me about how, Oh, I love your work. And I'm thinking like, he's just maybe heard of me, but he starts like listing very specific things that I've done for the pinball community. And I'm like, wow, this guy really does know my work. And then he sort of wraps up the conversation by saying, I'd love you to do a custom illustration for my personal arcade. Of course. Yeah. I'd love to do that. Long story short, I did the illustration for him. He had a lot of things he wanted to include from, you know, basketball, of course to a bunch of pinball machines, but he's also Canadian originally. So we got, you know, Maple Leaf in there and he's also a big fan of Slurpees. He has his own Slurpee machine in his home. He also likes this game called Whirly Ball. If you've never heard of Whirly Ball, it's played in bumper cars with these little like highlight rackets where you toss a ball back and forth and you try to move toward a basketball hoop and like toss it in the hoop. It sounds so crazy and it is, it's super fun, especially when you see seven foot three Todd McCulloch sitting in a bumper car (laughs) who you're playing against. That was the illustration with all that stuff jammed in there. And it was a great fun opportunity for me to meet Todd McCulloch Mm -hmm. and and become very friendly with him. I haven't got to the answering the question yet. The question was, have I been to Todd's house yet? And Todd has an amazing arcade, puts this room to shame. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) The invitation has been extended and we have not been yet, but it is something that my family and I are very much hoping to do when we feel comfortable venturing back out into the world again.
1: speaking of the pandemic, you know, did the pandemic take away or heighten anything that will inform your work or life moving forward?
0: Boy, that's an interesting question. We've been so day-to-day focused (laughs) trying to make it through, to be honest with you, that I'm not sure I've had the time to accurately ponder that question. That's a really good question though. There have been things that have come out of this pandemic, like a hunter's tale, that's being kickstarted right now. Again, if you go to a hunterstale.com, it'll take you straight to the Kickstarter campaign and afterward, it'll lead you to where you can buy the book. The script for the book is actually a poem that was written by my late grandfather, something that I've adapted into comic book form over the course of the pandemic. And this is a project that I've wanted to get to for a very long time. Kind of took 2020 to solidify why this poem resonated with me so much. You know, I had always loved this poem. It's my my absolute favorite poem that my grandfather ever wrote. I don't know that I really could pinpoint the reason for that. Over the course of 2020, even years prior, but really 2020, I think was a big tipping point of this divisive culture that has sprung up around our past president. And you've lived through it as well as I have. So I don't need to explain it. In rereading this poem, Uh, Ultimately, it's about finding reciprocated empathy with one another, finding commonalities, even within different worldviews. And I don't think that that's something that is being practiced very readily these days. My hope is that by giving this poem a wider audience more people can experience this and you know maybe keep something like this in the back of their mind as they're going about their daily rituals or interacting on social media or interacting with people in public too not think of alternate viewpoints as the enemy or stupid or an idiot or all these things that we've heard people call one another over the past year and more. It's really sad when we can't find a commonality with fellow humans. Uh, I understand that you know sometimes it's difficult to understand alternate viewpoints. But with that said, we should still treat one another with respect, and that goes both ways. Uh, it's not a one-sided thing. Both sides need to you know reach back across that aisle and establish that respect again. And I'm hoping that this poem, I'm hoping this comic can be a catalyst for some of that in people's lives.
1: Why do comics and poetry go hand in hand like what you created with your work? That's a good
0: question. This is the first comic poem I've created, so I'm not sure I'm adequately (laughs) equipped to answer that. I can answer that in terms of my grandfather's poem, because that's what I've worked with. I've just always felt like his poem, A Hunter's Tale, was such a visual, narratively driven poem. I don't know, sometimes I feel like poetry can be a little difficult to approach. It really will take some time to tease out meaning from particular poetry. This particular poem was so narratively driven, I, I could see it in my mind and I wanted to realize that. And I wanted to realize that for a long time. I'm kind of glad I've waited this long Because I think I understand it better, at least in context with, you know, what's been going on for the past year and a half. But also, I think my skills as a cartoonist have improved to the point where I can really do it justice. If I were to have done this project, you know, closer to the beginning of my career, I don't know that I would be able to look back on it with the same reverence that I do now. Uh, I'm, I'm so incredibly proud of the work that my grandfather and I were able to put together even after his passing. I can't wait for
1: people to see it. <laughs> did you understand your grandfather in a deeper sense because of this?
0: I'd, I'd like to think I did because you know, I read that poem so many times, not only over the course of making this, but throughout my life. I've, I've come back to that one in particular, but in making this comic, uh, I've done very close readings of it and thought about it a whole lot. I feel like only a very gentle soul could have made this work. I feel privileged to be able to work on it with him. I wish he were around to to share this and, you know, I, I hope he can see it in some way, shape or form, but, but yeah, I, I do feel like I understand the person my grandfather was a little better through multiple readings of this poem.
1: As a creator of comics, what was the first thing that you created that you made you realize that you could do this as a career?
0: That's a good question. Well, my, my first books were a series of very tiny autobiographical comics. They're called And Then One Day, page a day, auto bio strip, like a slice of life type of thing. Some of the pages were humorous and others were kind of somber. It just kind of depended upon what happened that day. At the time I was outputting those books about once a quarter and they were about 24 to 28 pages a piece. Since that time, my output has slowed down because I've gotten more responsibilities in my jobs, become married. I've become a father. Things have slowed down. I wish I could output material every quarter. Now I I try not to compare my current 42-year-old self with my former 20-something-year-old self who was <laughs> outputting at a much higher rate. I like to think the things I'm putting out now are of of higher quality, at least. <laughs> and I put that out along with a 24-hour comic. Uh, I did my first 24-hour comic in 2004. And that was the very first 24-hour comics day, national 24-hour comics day. At the time, I was living in California. Scott McCloud is the one who came up with this challenge and did the first 24 hour comic celebrate this new national day. Scott McCloud started going around to a few venues who were holding these 24 hour comics day. And most of them were in comic book shops. I lived in a very tiny town called Santillanes, California, about 45 minutes North of Santa Barbara, two and a half, three hours North of LA. I was holding this 24 hour comics day in a martial arts studio <laughs> who allowed us <laughs> to set up some folding tables and chairs and camp out there overnight to make comics. Scott McCloud showed up with his family and said hello and told us what a great job we were doing. <laughs> it was really pretty incredible. Those two comics, the first, and then one day my auto comics, and I called it rock and soul. That was my first 24 hour comic. Those both came out at the same time in May of 2004. So that was my my introduction to making comics.
1: And Scott McCloud is a pivotal figure, I think, when it comes to, you know, just understanding layouts, understanding comic creation and everything like that. It's it's a, a wonder. Amazing you got to meet him early on. That's that's That must have been an inspirational moment. Oh, for sure. That
0: that definitely kept all of us going for the next, you know, 20 some odd hours. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Going back to this particular comic, uh, of course, with The Hunter's Tale, what was the hardest scene for you to write?
0: So I am not a hunter. <laughs> <laughs> I have never shot an animal. <laughs> I, I came close. There was uh, a buddy of mine who was growing up on a horse farm. I, I, like I said, I grew up in a tiny town. There was this big hay barn, you know, they keep all the shavings and hay and stuff in there. And there were some nesting pigeons in this barn and that was, was not to be evidently. (laughs) And so this, this friend of mine and I, we were too young to be doing this at the time. I I can't imagine my son doing this, but uh, he was charged with shooting these pigeons. And so we went to this bar and he's like, oh yeah, this is what we're going to do. And I I wasn't saying much, but I'm like, oh my God, I I can't believe we have to do this. he's like, here, do you want to, do you want to shoot them? And I'm like, yeah. So I grabbed the gun and I pointed it at this tin ceiling and very deliberately, instead of shooting at the pigeons, shot this tin ceiling and bam, made this huge sound and all the pigeons, whoop, you know, flew away, and it's like, what'd you do that for? I'm like, well, I don't want to shoot him. <laughs> just get him out of here. <laughs> they weren't doing anything. I have never shot an animal, and I cannot even put a worm on a hook. I've done it before, and the worm, you know, squirms all around, and it just it's it's the worst. It's the worst. I never want to do it ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> all that to say, a comic about potentially hunting animals initially was like, oh gosh, I don't know if I can do this. So without giving much away about the comic, there is a scene in which this might be a little misleading. The hunter character is envisioning catching this deer in his memory balloon. This deer is sort of hoisted on top of his back and tied to his back so he can hoist it out of there. That was a traumatic image to photographic reference. I I do not want to go back to those Google image searches I did to find references for that. Not pleasant for me. And even drawing that picture was like, oh gosh, it just, you know, I was trying to get the body like droopy and that was the worst, Kurt. I I did not enjoy drawing that. You'll have to uh, take a look at the story to see if that memory Thought balloon, hope balloon, comes true or not. How's that for a cliffhanger?
1: (laughs) I usually have a spoiler alert segment on the show anyhow, so that works out very well. There is no spoiler, so good job. When it comes to creating, when it comes to writing, language always has power and words have power uh, as we all know too well in this past year and, and more, and it affects our lives in many different ways. When was the first time that you'd learned that language had power? another good question
0: there was a a project i did and then one day number six it's you know this is part of my autobiographical series of comics that i've done i started questioning autobiography reading up on the theory of autobiography in grad school and i found this theory which states that auto is no more truthful or objective than fiction because it's just one person's telling of what happened. Any other person's telling could vary from that. So I started trying to to think about ways to alter my approach to autobiographical comics and thinking about how I might be able to make them any more objective than they already are. So I came up with this method of working for this particular book. And then one day, number six, basically, instead of writing the book myself, I interviewed a bunch of different people in my life, parents, teachers, longtime friends, new acquaintances, ex-girlfriends, you know, the whole gamut. And uh, instead of interviewing them face-to-face, because I didn't want to influence their responses, I made these questions in the form of a box of flashcards and put each person in an isolated room with just the box of questions and a tape recorder. And I used those recordings to transcribe and convert into comic book form their responses. So this approach to autobiography was kind of a hybrid of like autobiography and documentary. I never appear in the book except for the introduction to sort of explain this whole thing I just did to you. So it's other people talking about me. At the same time, I still have an editorial hand in all this. Uh, I'm deciding what goes in, what gets left out, what I choose to tell. All that to say, in answer to your question, when did I first realize that words really have a great power? And it was during this process of making this book. You know, I told you I interviewed a bunch of people. One of them was my father. And it was interesting to see how this process Affected different people in different ways. I heard a lot of things that I had never heard before. My dad, he's, he's a little older than the average bear. I'm kid number seven of seven. And, you know, there was like a a lot of advice coming from my dad over the course of these interviews. And one of the things that he said was, uh, I can't remember what the question was, but uh, it was something to the effect of, you know, Ryan is going to be an influence on a great number of people in this world that he didn't even think about influencing. Went on and on, on on this line of speaking. And as I'm sitting there listening to it and transcribing it, I'm thinking, okay, my son is great. My son is good. This is boring. It's never going to go in the book. And then he wrapped up this statement by saying some of these experiences you have with people are going to be positive, And some of them, some of these influential experiences you have with people on people are going to be negative. It really like blew me back for a second and made me think about how I conduct myself in this world, how I interact with other people, how I envision who they are. That was a really powerful point of writing for me when I was transcribing that, converting that into comics form. When you do that, you're forced to not just listen to it, not just write it down, but then like handwrite it down and then illustrate the whole thing. Like you're intimately involved with that for an extended period of time. I'd probably point to that uh, interview with my dad for that book.
1: What's your creative kryptonite? <laughs> Not enough
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those people who has no shortage of things that I want to do and want to make in this world. I, I, I just, I wish I had infinite time. If there was a fountain of youth somewhere, I would lap it all up. I have so many things I want to do. And the difficult part is prioritizing for me. I want to do so much. Things I want to make and people I want to see and hang out with and experiences I want to have. I can't remember the last time I was bored. I, I would say limited time.
1: <laughs> what are some common traps that you see young comic creators diving into, especially at the university level?
0: Something that I see really frequently, well, I'll, I'll give you a couple things. One of the things that's really easy to change is lettering. And it doesn't sound like much, but when you learn a few lettering principles, just improving the professionalism of your lettering ups your comics game you know exponentially. Uh, you can see amateur lettering from a mile away. And I think most people who look at comics and maybe even comics readers, while they can see it, they might not be able to pick it apart and understand it at a granular level enough so that they can conceptualize it in their own head and then output a professional looking product. So that's something that I go over in my Fundamentals of Comics class very early on. And and I think it really helps uh, the students' comics moving forward. So that's one thing I see and try to address for early. Uh, Another thing that I've seen in... uh, nascent comic creators is um, as you read comics from beginning creators, there's occasionally like choppy transitions between panels where you can't really understand how they got from panel A to panel B. And the thing that helps to ease that transition that I think a lot of new creators don't think about is including elements from prior panels in with current panels. So if you look at the panel before and there's some object, some portion of a subject that's then repeated in the next panel, then typically you can understand how that camera has moved throughout space, where it's going in this environment. So uh, those would be a couple of things I would point at to begin with first understanding lettering. And secondly, keeping that mantra in your mind include elements from prior panels and with current panels to ease that transition from panel to panel.
1: At what point are we good enough? Wow.
0: Gosh. And how to relate that back to comics too. (laughs) That's a good question, Kurt. Uh, You should have given me that one beforehand. So I had some time to think. I would say that each of us are always good enough. I think we put, Too much pressure on ourselves as artists, as creators, as humans. You know, we're always striving to be better in some way. And I don't think that we should stop striving to be better. I think we should also give ourselves some grace, appreciate the jobs that we're all doing. Over the past year and a half, we've all been through hell and back in one particular way or another. And it's interesting how that's really been very different for so many people. You know, some people are suffering from crippling loneliness and others are, have seen the same people in their household for so long. There's just so many different ways that people have been dealing with the pandemic over the past year and a half, uh, you know, almost two years at this point, but I think each of us should give ourselves a little leeway and say, Hey, we're still here. We're still healthy. We're still alive. We're still employed. You know, there's a lot of blessings that, we should probably count. That would probably be my answer. I'm not sure if that relates to comics or not, but I think I think we're all good enough.
1: When did your life change for the better? Mm,
0: boy, probably a lot of times. I don't know. I-, I I came into this world to very good parents. You know, I, d- I don't know that I appreciated them when I was growing up. I, I knew they were great parents and I love them very much, but the more I move on in life and the more people I meet and the more experiences I hear, thank my lucky stars. I, I hit the jackpot with some very caring and understanding and supportive parents. I just, you know, I can't say enough about them. I love you guys. It got better as I meet new people and meet kind friends and meet my wonderful wife. And so we had our amazing son, and we've formed a life together, you know, each of those milestones, I think life continues to get better. I think life gets pretty awesome when I feel like I'm making a difference in someone else's life in terms of like teaching these comics courses. And I've had some incredibly flattering responses to students' reaction to the semester I ask a lot of my students and I think they come out of the class with a tangible product and it's not a bunch of busy work throughout the semester. It's all geared toward making something. Even at the end of the fundamentals class, every single student has their own book. It's not, an anthology. It's not, you know, everyone's book. Every student has their own book. I organize, typically, you know, in the before times, an in-store signing for them, where we will go to a local comic shop and they'll sign and sell what they made over the course of the semester. And that's a really rare scenario. Uh, I don't think it should be, but for some reason, it is. I-, I tell my students all the time: if you're not making money from your art, then you cannot keep making art. And yeah, you could go get a barista job or you could you know, try to make artwork after your corporate day job or something to that effect, but it's awfully hard to do that. And so I try to introduce my students real early to the concept of making money from your art. And for some reason that's like, a four letter word in most university art departments. It's like, oh, art and money. No, you have to uh, make art that means something. And I don't disagree with that. I think that's true. But if you're making art that means something, then people will value that. And comics is such a great medium because unlike, let's say painting or something where there's like an original, and that's the thing that people want, Nobody cares about original art pages for comics. And, you know, Some people will purchase original art pages, but really the object that people want is a reproduction. And so you can reproduce 20, 30, 50, 100, 1,000, 10,000, however many books you can sell, you can reproduce that. And so I try to introduce my students to monetizing their artwork, even in the fundamentals class. And then in our advanced class, we, we go beyond that. It, it feels real great when I'll get feedback from students saying things like, you know, this was the best class I ever took at MSU. This class changed my life, not only looking at things differently, but doing things differently than I would have otherwise. And I love that.
1: What is one mistake that you will never do again?
0: I will never run a crowdfunding campaign without a completed product. (laughs) I ran my first crowdfunding campaign for a book that was completed, but not quite because I was coloring it during the campaign. So really it wasn't done. The inks were done, but the coloring wasn't done. That was just such a colossal mistake. It was so stressful at the time. And on top of all that, I became a father right in the middle of it, so I will also never (laughs) do another crowdfunding campaign. As my wife is pregnant, we had our son in the middle of the crowdfunding campaign and then all sleep was lost. It was just so silly of me in terms of planning. I've always vowed since then that I will never run another Kickstarter unless my project is complete. Where I'm at right now in January, 2022, I've got a completed book penciled, inked, lettered, colored. It's ready to go. I've talked to my printer. We've got everything set up. All I need is the fun is to print it and then we'll press the go button and make these books. Uh, I can't wait.
1: But is there anything that I haven't touched upon that you'd like to share that those are watching or listening?
0: I think you've done a pretty thorough job. We've we've talked about a lot of stuff already. I just really appreciate the opportunity to come chat with you and chat with your listeners. This has been super fun, Kurt. I, I really appreciate you having me here during my crowdfunding campaign.
1: Well, I appreciate you coming on the show to talk about your work. It's it's a win-win situation and it, it's an, an amazing book and I can't wait to see more of it. Thank you. Everyone has one person that inspired them on their path to where they are today. Who was that for you?
0: I'd have to say my dad. How, how do you describe an, an awesome dad? He's been so supportive, funny, full of insightful thoughts, continually trying to educate me whether I want it or not. <laughs> to the point where I've named my self-publishing company after a saying that he would tell me as a kid all the time he'd say, well, it's like eating, eating an elephant. You just do it one bite at a time. And before you know it, you're done. And so I always think about that when I have big tasks in front of me, like, you know, going through school or creating a book or raising a child now, or, you know, any number of things in life that are big and worthwhile and, intimidating to tackle, (laughs) but if you just chip away at it, if you just do it a little bit at a time before you know it, you're going to have something pretty great to look back on. I guess I would probably say my, my dad, my parents, my, my mom is incredible as well. Just unrelentingly supportive. Uh, so I, I don't want to overlook either of my parents, but you know, I named my publishing company after this saying that my dad would tell my brothers and sisters and I growing up, I guess I'll say my dad.
1: From a professional standpoint, you teach comics at at a university, (laughs) a well-known university at that. You have created your own comics. You have written comics. You are now doing your Kickstarter campaign for an amazing comic based off of a poem from your grandfather. And you have the younger generation that, Is going to become a creative as well. Hopefully, (laughs) you know, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Do you consider yourself personally successful?
0: Oh man, that is another good question. (laughs) I don't know where you're coming up with all these, but they're really good. (laughs) I guess so. I think that I'm frequently in the weeds. Like I'm in a project or I'm looking at the next project or I'm trying to strategize how the next several projects are going to happen and how long that's going to take. And am I going to live long enough to make all these projects? So, you know, I think when somebody like you shakes me on the shoulders and says, wake up, stop doing what you're doing for a minute. (laughs) I think so. I, I think more so because of my family. I, I have an incredible wife and a wonderful little boy. They have made this life of mine so fulfilling. But I'm also really proud of the work that I've done recently on this book. And as a cartoonist, I feel like I'm sort of hitting my stride with these past couple books that I've done. And I'm sort of a mid-career cartoonist at this point, which is a weird thing to admit. I always feel like comics is a a young man's game, (laughs) a young person's game, I should say. I've felt like I was in that role for a long time, but shake myself and go, oh, you're you're 42 now. You're not in your 20s anymore. There's a limited amount of time you're going to be here and a limited number of projects you could have. I think I'm really feeling good about what I'm outputting these days.
1: The reverse of success is failure. How do you deal with your failures?
0: I think I try to rely on other people. I try to rely on the connections that I have with my wife, with my parents, with my therapist, (laughs) with my son. You know, he also kind of puts things in perspective. I don't necessarily burden him with what I perceive as my failures, but when that does happen and I am in his presence, I certainly have a different perspective on life. So I would say relying on people I'm close with in my life, my, uh, my good friends, my family, my wife, my kid, my parents,
1: The younger generation is looking at your work and they're becoming inspired to be creative in their own way. In fact, you do have the younger generation with you currently, and you are inspiring him to be creative, maybe subconsciously. Who knows? It's it's an amazing world out there. How can they inspire the generation that follows them?
0: In a very similar way that this generation, my generation is doing, that the generation before them did which is just to continue making work that you are passionate about if you are passionate about something if you're making work about something that you believe in you're going to show it and that's going to be contagious and the work is going to be better for it i don't feel like i'm making commercially viable <laughs> comics here i'm making comics you know this this one is about it's my grandfather's poem. It's me having a connection with him through a creative endeavor. It's trying to share that with a world that I think needs it. Hopefully, that can inspire someone, and hopefully, the next generation, you know, my students, maybe my son, if he decides to do something creative, whether he does or not, is just fine with me. Be passionate about what you're creating think about what is important to you and make work about that and share that with people and that's that's going to make a difference
1: i do hate to say this ryan though but that ends this particular episode of two Geeks talking but before i let you go how can we support you and how can we not only support this kickstarter but where can we find you on social media all that wonderful
0: job sure well first of all if people have watched this far. Thank you for watching this whole episode. It's very nice of you. And if you haven't heard it enough, I'm trying to get people to head over to tale.com That'll take you straight to the Kickstarter campaign for... A Hunter's Tale, which is the comics poem by my grandfather. That's that's the most important one. I I think you probably see that URL on the bottom, uh, elephanteater.com. That's where you can find all my comics. I'm also on social media, Twitter at elephanteater. Eater. It's all on my elephanteater.com contact page. You can find it all there.
1: <laughs> well, Ryan, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I do want to have you on later on and not maybe in the year, but you know, whatever your next wonderful project is for sure. Or if you want to stop by, we'll talk, we'll talk comics, we'll talk pinballs, We'll talk, talk, whatever. But I have to ask you, what is the hardest pinball game that you've ever beaten? Oh
0: man. Well, um, it's really hard to beat a pinball machine because gravity always wins. <laughs> you know, there, there are very specific goals within each machine. I really love these old 1950s games. I'm going to see if I can shoot you over here a little bit. Uh, They they call these wood rail pinball machines for obvious reasons. Their rails were formerly made out of wood. And uh, these are from the 1950s. Some of them date back to the 1940s that you see in the background there. Instead of trying to get just a high score and progress through the game, back in these days, you were trying to get a replay. And these games... Are really interesting because you can get replays in a number of different ways. You can get them from completing a sequence, A, B, C, D. You can get them from completing a different sequence, one, two, three, four, five, six. You could get them from completing a specific number of targets, like five gobble holes. You could get them from completing uh, or, or hitting a particular score threshold, like a high score. You could also get them from completing a certain point threshold, which is different from a score threshold. I could get into that, but I'm sure I'll you know, bore your listeners. All that to say, all those different things are all available on the same pinball machine. So you can conceivably win replays in any number of ways. But the great thing about these is that each one of them is thresholded in such a way where 90% of the games that you play, 90% of the games that I play, you get right up to that score threshold or point threshold or sequence threshold. And it you just don't quite get it. Um, and it's just got that one more game replay factor to it that makes these games so exciting. And I can only imagine what that would have been like playing these on location, you know, 70 years ago. Uh, I mean, they're exciting in my home and I'm not playing for money. Uh, but they must have been even more fun uh, on location. So yeah, I'm just so fascinated by the deep hobby that pinball is. You know, you can appreciate it for its gameplay. You can appreciate it for its kinetics, for the physics, for the artwork, for the mechanics, for the electronics, for the history, for uh, the people that made these. It's just, there's so much to be involved in with this hobby. I I don't think I'll, I still feel like I'm scratching the surface of it. And I've been involved with it for well over a decade and written a book on it.
1: That ends this particular episode. You can find this interview and a thousand plus others on our website, tgtmedia.com, or our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash TGTmedia. And as I say every week, everyone has a story to tell, and it's up to me to help bring that out. Thanks for listening and watching on Two Geeks Talk. Hey, all Kurt Sassel here from Two Geeks Talking. If you like this video and these quick clips here, make sure you take a look at our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash TGTmedia. Make sure you hit the likes button and subscribe as well. Hit the bell to make sure you get notifications, of course, from videos like this here. Thank you everyone for listening and watching over the years. And keep listening and watching for new and exciting interviews with talented creative people in the entertainment industry. I'm your host, Kurt Sasso. Thank you so much.